Hi, I'm Douglas Ferguson. Welcome to the Facilitation Lab podcast, where I speak with Voltage Control certification alumni and other facilitation experts about the remarkable impact they're making. We embrace a method agnostic approach so you can enjoy a wide range of topics and perspectives as we examine all the nuances of enabling meaningful group experiences. This series is dedicated to helping you navigate the realities of facilitating collaboration, ensuring every session you lead becomes truly transformative. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to join us for a live session sometime, you can join our Facilitation Lab community. It's an ideal space to apply what you learn in the podcast in real time with peers. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com slash facilitation dash lab. And if you'd like to learn more about our 12-week facilitation certification program, you can read about it at voltagecontrol.com. Today, I'm with Roselle Junio at SAP, where she's the Global Head of Quality Training and Optimization for Concur Expense Audit and Capture Services. Welcome to the show, Roselle. Glad to be here, Douglas. It's so great to be chatting with you and love featuring our alumni on the show and you know, we published a blog post not that long ago, so we can hit on some of the things we talked about there and dive even deeper. So as usual, I'd like to start with, you know, how you got your start in facilitation. What was some of those moments where you started to realize that facilitation was an important skill or something to bring into the workplace to improve outcomes? I, you know, I started, I think I started becoming a leader since I can talk. So, um, but my leadership journey started getting stretched when I started working with a multinational company uh, where I led hundreds of people and I had foreigners as bosses. And I realized, you know, all through my young life, it's easy for me to organize meetings and talk to people locally. Because again, like I said, I think since kindergarten, I've been doing that. But when I was dealing with different people with different cultures, it it just struck me that, you know, other people need to be engaged differently. And that, again, became very apparent when I joined SAP and I evolved my role from a local leader to supporting more than 100 people in five different locations and engaging partners and stakeholders, I don't know, in maybe 12 different locations (laughs) in several regions across the globe. And and that's where I said, okay, hold on. I'm making so many mistakes. I'm pissing off so many people. (laughs) And I have to learn different approaches, whether I'm doing one-on-ones or small groups or engaging hundreds of people in in a meeting. And that's where I said, okay, I I need some work. And um, I obviously started just learning by myself, mm. like anyone, right? Like we would um, go and look up for e-learnings. I reached out to different people in the organization to mentor me, uh, give me advice. I was introduced to liberating structures. 
I looked at mural uh, templates, see how I can use them, et cetera. And that's where sort of I stumbled upon um, voltage control and your certification. And I said, okay, if I want to be successful in my role and as a person, as a professional, I need to be formally trained on this. So, uh, so I, I engaged and I had a, and everything is like sort of opened up for me after that. Mm, nice. So I want to come back to the kindergarten moments. So tell me, <laughs> tell me about some of these early leadership moments. Like I love to hear a story about how that showed up. Oh, uh, small things like, you know, when you're in, we're in your school, you're being asked to do group work. And, you know, when we're, you're your kids and you're looking at each other and figuring out who's going to say the first thing. And I would always go and say, I am Roselle. What is your name? I'm five years old. Well, how old are you? <laughs> so um, I would start those conversations and I sort of became the person that gets people to get to know each other and work together. So that's me. <laughs> a connector from a young age. Yeah. yeah. And so does that still play out in your work today around connecting people and helping people get to know each other and building alignment in that way? I think that is my superpower, Douglas. I do connect. I think because I believe that knowing can be successful without the other mm -hmm. we need each other to thrive and we have to realize that we are strong in certain areas and others are strong in other areas and together when we do connect we can do really incredible stuff so i i like connecting people where people are just talking to me and in my mind, I'm already thinking, who am I going to introduce this person mm -hmm. to so she can, he or she can make his dream a reality. And that sort of kicks in automatically. Yeah, the connection piece also makes me think about, you were talking earlier in the pre-show chat around this idea of you know, the multicultural team and how you had to learn from each other. And so I wonder if this ability you have around connection, the superpower that you have, did that make you more apt to, uh, to tune into that need? Yeah, I think so. Like I said, because it automatically kicks in for me. I look for opportunities for us to build trust, right? It's almost... Like, I see every interaction, every human interaction, an opportunity for us to grow with one another. I don't know if that's cheesy, but because I am a connector, I intentionally look for these things and understand what are those pain points for that other person what does he want to gain from this conversation? And then that's where I go and think about, you know, either I can help with that or somebody from my other team can help with that. 
that's that's I think my answer to the question. <laughs> yeah. So it made me think about I love this opportunities of trust. And I'm curious if, if any stories come to mind around where you were presented with something that might have even been a challenge and um, you were able to turn that into a trust building moment or just or even just any any time where where the, the trust really thrived and you and you felt really proud of that moment. Hmm. I'm working with different leaders where in meetings and conversations, there's always sort of a power play, right? And there will be times when my over-eagerness to help might be misconstrued as my taking over their job mm -hmm. or expanding my control, if you want to call it that. And, you know, at the time when I was speaking in, in the meeting where I wanted to just really help, I didn't tune into, you know, the, the apprehensions. Mm. In the, and this was in a call, so I couldn't see their faces. I couldn't, you know, there's just no signs um, that, hold on, you know, you're crossing a line there, girl. And after I started asking questions about what they thought about my proposal and how they think my team's role is um, in this type of work, it was all like silence. And that was very interesting to me. So what I did was, obviously, I started thinking about what was going on. And, you know, you have to read the room. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I overstepped my boundaries. And, you know, and like you said, this, it's a challenge, but also an opportunity for me to engage them differently. So what was the issue? I felt like they felt that I was a threat in some way. Um, of course, they won't say that, but I have to understand what was going on and clarify uh, one and one <laughs> with the people in that room. What support do they need from my team? Mm. And then come up with a way to utilize you know, the strengths of each of the groups to solve the problem with me just helping in a way they want me to help <laughs> there. Mm. So it's, a, it's, it's difficult when, especially in this time when, you know, AI is taking over our lives and cuts are being made and, you know, people are anxious. And when in conversations, you can feel that anxiety in the air and we have to tune into that in, in conversations. Absolutely. I was going to actually ask you about signals, which is really interesting because you were talking about tuning into conversations and you were also talking about thinking about who might not connect this person with or what's mm. happening for them and how can I kind of be in service of that and mm. I'm curious, when you think about these signals, is it more of a real-time thing 
Or is it something that you're planning ahead of time? Or are you reflecting after the fact around signals you noticed and then coming back and repairing things or, or embellishing things mm. that need need attention? Or is it a mixture of all three? I'm kind of curious like how that shows up for you. It's a mixture of all three. Because mm. I do prepare for meetings. Before I go into a meeting, if I was the one invited, I will ask, can I add value in this meeting? Or if not, I'll just politely decline. If I do accept a meeting, I try to understand who's there, what their needs are. I try to forecast that somehow. But of course, I can everything, right? So, And then within the meeting, I have learned over time, especially since I facilitate a lot, I think it's really that that skill facilitating allows you to look at the dynamic more than the content. So you're going to have to see what energy is in the room, whether it's face-to-face or in in a virtual call. And because I intentionally work on my facilitation skills, uh, where you're more tuned in to other people's thoughts and also be conscious of your own, it, it happens real time. And then even afterwards, a lot of times I go and have a conversation with somebody in, in that meeting and, uh, and I ask, like, was I too forward or did I come off too strong? Um, what could I have done better? Or did I not tune into something that I should have? So things like that. Yeah, it's like uh, I'm, I think I'm picking up on a general kind of theme of curiosity and just kind of what can I know ahead of time and, and be curious about and then in being curious in the moment and then retaining that curiosity after the fact because even though we get great at what we do, there's always room for improvement. So it's that growth edge too. Yeah, that's true. It's like the growth mindset, right? Like it's, it's always room for improvement. That's the first thing I learned from my first leader mm. in the call center world. I was this smug girl who graduated from a top university in the Philippines. And I was like, I'm too good for this. And every time she would coach me, I would like have all this excuses why I didn't do it (laughs) or I didn't, you know, whatever. And then she said, think about what you just said to me and think if those statements will help you grow. And of course, because they are excuses, didn't, right? So she said, okay, what do you think can help you grow? And then I started thinking about this and she said, see, you know, there's always room for improvement. And ever since, that's always been how I saw my growth. We never stopped. You know, that reminds me of something you mentioned in the blog post, which was uh, this appreciation for the diverse cohort and how you were learning from others. Like, I think it was Baxter that was, um, you know, preparing <laughs> his uh, service menu and thinking about how he's going to launch his professional services organization. And... I thought that was pretty remarkable because, you know, some folks would think, well, I'm not going to be selling consulting services, so how does this apply to me? 
that kind of closed mindset around what are the direct things I need to know and learn can be very limiting, right? Because it, you're already mm. making the assumption that I know the things I need to learn. So that's, you know, it's like uh, not open to new things and where the edges might be. And I thought that was really remarkable that uh, that you you took those insights from him and thought, how is that going to impact me at SAP and how I communicate the services we offer and, and what we provide to the folks around us, to our partners, to our coworkers? It's really cool. Yeah, I... I thought he was really cool, too. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) The confidence that he had, the fact that he just wanted to make a difference. uh, Those are the kinds of people we all want to be around with, right? And when he shared that, I said to myself, if my team were a service organization separate from SAP, I would love my team to operate in the same way. So it's really cool. And which reminds me, I, I should I should reach out to him and have a short chat <laughs> and just check in. Yeah, of course. That's that connection piece. You got to reach out and connect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was thinking about your multicultural team a little more, and you were talking about this idea of learning from each other. And some like there are some really interesting dynamics just around how you all need to show up to support the different ways that everyone thinks about solving problems or thinks about communicating or even the words they choose to use. I'm just like really fascinated about that. Yeah. Um, you know, what's interesting about having a multicultural team is that you can recognize their bias immediately. <laughs> uh, because one difficulty or challenge in dealing with the other group, they just say, it's because they're Filipinos or they're Americans or they're British. (laughs) That's why they're like that. And we have to always intentionally think about why are they like that? And you talk about curiosity, right? And that's what I keep telling the team. Like, let's be curious about each other. Why are they pushing back on a policy that you think is so usual in the Philippines? An example would be, we work in an environment where we have to be staffed 24 by 7. And so I have a number of people across the globe filling those slots. But I still need a couple of people in different places to be in the night shift to fully cover the load that we have. And one of the sites said that they they just couldn't. Hmm. And of course, because they couldn't, you know, the other site need to stretch themselves and cover the night shift. And in the past, they would just kind of, you know, that's that's how they roll or whatever, right? And the animosity increases. There's loss of trust and all these things, you know. Until one person said in the meeting, like, would you mind sharing with us why is it difficult for you to cover the night shift? And then they said, 
Oh, because it's not safe in the streets. Mm. Like we can't ask. A majority of the group are female, and we just—it's just not safe, you know. And that just kind of shifted the energy in the room, where we realized that, oh my God, like that is what they're dealing with in that part of the world. And we were here thinking they were just unreasonable. <laughs> so yeah, so that that's an example of us changing the conversations, asking questions, being more facilitative in our approach, and really understanding each other and connecting with each other, and building the empathy so that we can work together better because trust is there. Mm. So. Yeah, I remember also you talking about the China team right. and kind of deploying some different techniques and meetings there to, to get them more engaged. Yes, the China team, they are they're very soft-spoken. If you don't call on them, they will not speak. So we really have to make sure that when we have them in meetings, and we have to always have them in the meetings because they're an integral part of the team. We either make sure that we call on them or if we feel like they're not comfortable speaking in the big groups, we would have breakout sessions just specifically to get them to speak. It's a one-on-one thing. Like We would have several co-facilitators be in calls with them, in separate breakout rooms with them, and just talking to them one-on-one and getting them to share their thoughts and their ideas. And those co-facilitators just writing all of these down. And then we go when we go back to the big group, we share what we learned as facilitators in those um, breakout sessions. And then... If they're comfortable, and usually they are after the one-on-ones, they can expound out in in the bigger group. And now we hear their voices, and and they feel that their opinions matter, that we are including them in the conversation. And yeah, it, and it, it takes a while. <laughs> and they still go and kind of climb up. But as facilitators, we need to kind of figure out how to pivot within the meeting to get everybody to speak and share their thoughts and ideas. Yeah, and you mentioning the co-facilitators reminded me of how um, you talked about that being a really important leadership opportunity for you to bring others in and encourage new behaviors on the team. So giving them opportunities to kind of lead and co-lead sessions really um, leveled them up. So I'm curious to hear how that's going and maybe what was critical in making that successful? Uh, Wow. To be honest, I have to show them that it's okay to make mistakes in sessions. Hmm. Because that's what they're afraid of. That's why they don't want to lead conversations. They don't want to facilitate. And I can't facilitate all of our meetings. <laughs> <laughs> we are probably, I don't know, 40 meetings a week. 
So we really needed people to step up to lead these things. And uh, as, and I don't want to generalize, I'm talking about my team. My team is generally not confident in themselves and they get struck by imposter syndrome all the time. <laughs> I'm not enough. I, I don't have the right to lead meetings uh, with, you know, directors or managers in, in my calls. And um, that's what they need to overcome. They have the potential to be great facilitators, but it's the fear of messing up that really keeps them from thriving. Hmm. So anyway, going back to your question, it's just me being on calls with them before the meeting, prepping for the meeting, being in the meeting with them side by side and, you know, showing them it's okay to pause. It's okay to go back to your notes. It's okay to say, I need your help to do this. Mark, what do you think, Dave? You know, so those kinds of opportunities within the meeting where you tell them that you're going to, well, I prep them though. I do tell them that I'm going to call on you, okay? So, <laughs> so they then get too um, scared are nervous because they know I'm going to call on them. And then after that, we debrief. We talk to each other and say, like, what do you think you did well? What are the things that don't work out? How do we become better facilitators? Okay, next week, you're going to be the lead facilitator. I'll just be in the background and, uh, and help. Now, that's what I do. I don't, I rarely lead meetings nowadays mm. i'm mostly in the background and it hurts me because uh i i i'm not practicing my facilitation skills <laughs> <laughs> that much so anyway another thing i was curious to hear more about in person was the this idea that um other people in the organization are starting to notice that your mm. meetings are run really well I'm kind of curious to like any stories there or just any anecdotes to kind of make that come to life. So I was in a meeting with some leaders and we were talking about how my team is going to help with several, you know, business problems we need to solve. And I did sort of say, okay, things are, you know, out of the maybe 10 things that we talked about, you know, we can help with, one, two, and three. Um, and then uh, one of the directors said, after the meeting, she said, as we go through all of these things, I hope that, you know, every after a meeting or a workshop or whatever, we send a summary and we follow up on actions and we just kind of organize it better. And then she said, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to say that to you, Rosal, because your team always does that anyway. So that was like in front of a lot of leaders. And I, f I felt 
validated. Like my tia <laughs> was like um, really does the, their homework and make sure that we prepare um, not just ourselves, but also the participants um, run the meetings um, as you know, expected based on the goals, objectives that we've set. Mm. And then make sure that we summarize, we follow up, and be prepared for the next meeting. So I felt that that was really cool. And then I shared that with my team. I said, you guys just make me look good. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So... A couple things as we wrap up. First, what's your next big thing? What's on the horizon? Um, in, in our conversation last time where I built my facilitation portfolio, right? I wanted to build sort of a facilitation service. Mm. But I realized that's not what is needed in the organization because a lot of people... Uh, lead meetings, facilitate workshops, um, and like us, are accidental f facilitators too. Mm. And I just wanted to, instead of building that service, you know, I just wanted to create a community within first, like my immediate team or the team that we support. I don't know if it grows and it grows like a facilitation community very similar to what you do douglas <laughs> mm -hmm. i like copying people <laughs> mm -hmm. but also to encourage everyone to take formal classes too because you know in sap even though we're a big company and we can learn from each other the tools that i learned from the cohort in voltage control i don't think i would have picked up some of them within SAP. I don't know, right? But it just felt like it just opened so many things for me. Like right now I'm reading a book recommended by um, by one of the cohort participants you know, it's, uh, called Good Talk. Mm, yeah, Daniel yeah. Stillman's book. Yeah. So I'm just starting and it's like, oh, wow. It's like this is powerful. And it's not just meetings. It's just it's also relationship conversations it's beautiful again something that i'm still benefiting from like months after the cohort and i'm very grateful for that nice well i want to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought i'm very passionate about creating safe inclusive and empowering spaces for people, whether it be virtual or face-to-face, -face, either in families, in communities, in the workplace, and especially for you know, multicultural team. And what I learned really is that whether it's multicultural or not, the approach is going to be different per group, per person. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And um, I use different tools and approaches, advice from different people, uh, things that I learned from the cohort to intentionally exercise trust-building actions 
and different approaches that embraces the differences, the diversity in the groups that I interact with. Because I think anyone can lead as long as you have the right tools and the right intention. And if your purpose is aligned, because after all, we're all humans. We can eat the same food. We love the same way, I'm sure. Or, you know, just we, our hearts break maybe differently, but we just, you know, I'm just saying that we're all just humans trying to navigate and wanting to be happy and belong. Mm. So uh, let's be beautifully flawed together. <laughs> Incredible. Well, Roselle, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. And thank you for that final sentiment. And I look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Thank you, Douglas. Thank you for the opportunity. I uh, had fun. And I'll reach out to some of my, my classmates. Because <laughs> it made me think about them. Uh, and I'll connect. Thanks again, Douglas. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Facilitation Lab podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe and receive updates when new episodes are released. We love listener tales and invite you to share your facilitation stories. Send them to us on LinkedIn or via email. If you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about facilitation, team dynamics, and collaboration. VoltageControl.com.